Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would answer that prayer. That by the Holy Spirit, you would renew our faith. That you would uh, speak to us where we are weak. That you would encourage us where our faith seems frail. That you would convict of sin where there is hardness of heart and blindness to our own shortcomings. And that you would apply the hope, the salve of the gospel that Christ is all. That He has carried all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our burden and has put it to death. And that in Him we are raised to new life. Give us eyes to see and minds to comprehend what You have for us from Your Word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat now. For the record, you can sit whenever you'd like, but it's uh, standing together to sing, I guess, is a good thing. Uh, good morning. We are back in Luke's Gospel, Luke's, uh, Luke chapter 9, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> verse 46. You can turn there, and as you are turning there, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 46, we're going to start with a bit of an illustration this morning. Often in our house, uh, we, we get into conversations like this. Who would win in a fight between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Dumbledore? See, someone already shouted Dumbledore. And then I have people arguing like Jedis, wizards. And I'm like, well, if you're going to go the wizard route, you've got to go Gandalf. He kicks everyone's butt, right? These are the, these are the conversations we have in, in our house, right? Or which superpower is, would be best to have? Don't answer that because we don't have time to have that argument today. But we're getting at what's the, the best of the best, right? What's, the, what's your top five list in pick a category? Last week, we laid out a, a bunch of kind of standard Easter candy as a family, picked through it, sampled it, and then we all made lists of like top five of the pile of things on the table. You can imagine that among seven of us, my wife and I and five kids, there was very little consensus some of us think that marshmallow peeps are indeed the greatest candy of all time. And some of us are excited that they will migrate away for another 11 months. Right? I think they're disgusting. That's just me. If you like peeps, I mean no disrespect. Apparently they're good if you stick them on a stick and use them as a s'more. But I don't know that because why would I try that? Right? But we do this with all sorts of things. We make lists, we make comparisons, we compare the best movies or the best music of a particular genre. I'm sure you do this too, right? You've heard this argument. When it comes to basketball, who is the GOAT? Jordan? LeBron? Does Kobe get an honorable mention? What about the OGs like Kareem or Larry, Legend, Larry Bird? Right? What about football? Is it Montana or Young? Elway? Manning? Does he get an honorable mention? I mean, not Eli, clearly, but Peyton, maybe? Or is it the polarizing, ageless wonder, Tom Brady? Right? How about my favorite sport? Baseball. Is the GOAT Willie Mays or Ted Williams? What about someone who is iconic in the sport, like Jackie Robinson? Or on a personal note... Like personal heroes, guys who were close to home, like Kirby Puckett. Man, I grew up watching that guy play baseball. Like, 
he's the greatest thing on a baseball field, right? In February 1964, the boxer Cassius Clay, who would later change his name and become, come to be known as Muhammad Ali, famously said this. He said, I am the greatest. He said it better than that, too. And this was all in the lead-up to a championship fight with a boxer named Sonny Liston. And this is a quote from, from Clay. He said this, I am the greatest. Fifteen times I've told the clown what round he's going down, and this chump ain't no different. He'll fall in eight to prove that I'm great, and if he keeps talking jive, I'll cut it to five. He was often asked after his victories for this like poetic response. It's a really, actually, really fascinating story, the story of Muhammad Ali. It's a side point. He actually won the fight in seven rounds against Sonny Liston as the underdog. Now, we could go on, right? There's great explorers. There's great minds who've discovered medical advancements or the treatment of disease or great risk takers who built things and crashed things or, or flew things further and higher and, than anyone had before them. Or one of my favorites, whoever it was that discovered that a small fruit native to East Africa Inside had a small green seed that if dried and roasted and ground up and steeped in hot water produces one of the most blessed things that God has uh, granted all of creation. Coffee. Right? It's only, we really only have like legends and myths about who actually discovered and invented the process. There's many stories about it. But whoever they are, they are the real MVP. Can we all agree to that? I know there's a few of you who don't drink coffee. Just... Stick that in your pocket. You can fight me later. So why this extended illustration as part of our introduction this morning? See, we measure greatness using all sorts of metrics. Championships, victories, wins, overcoming adversity, breaking through barriers, accomplishing some great feat. And the challenge for us is, while we might attempt to use similar standards, there is just... Too much subjectivity. We just can't. But here in this passage, in Luke chapter 9, three simple verses we're going to read today, Jesus gives an objective standard of what it means to be great. The standard of greatness for the kingdom of God is different than any other measure we would use for greatness among us as people. There is a different set of accounting in the kingdom. If you'll go with me for a second. The math in the kingdom of God is different. How things are measured and work according to God's kingdom are different than how we tend to operate and think if left to ourselves. So Jesus sets this standard for us that we'll read in this text. And and a clear and right assessment, honestly if we're honest, really isn't all that important when we're talking about quarterbacks or the best pop songs from the 90s or the best Easter candy. It really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But it is really important, it is super important when we attempt to assess ourselves and our standing before God and our relationship to one another. It's very important in those categories. So not Because not only are our assessments uh, completely subjective, meaning everyone's assessment is a little bit different and their perspective's a little different, but when we attempt to judge ourselves by our own made-up standard, we almost always will get a skewed result. Because we have an overdeveloped sense of self, 
Our vision is too narrow. And part of that is we can't help it. In the negative sense, the Bible calls this pride. And this leads us towards a false and faulty assessment of greatness. It always will lead us that way. So let's read God's word for today. It's just three verses. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 46 through verse 48. This is the word of the Lord for us today. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. This is God's word for us this morning. The big idea from these few verses this morning is is this. That pride leads to a false sense of greatness. But Jesus here confronts our pride and shows us that true greatness is in humility. And that receiving him, we are being conformed to his likeness. We'll unpack this, I promise. This, Jesus says, in, according to the kingdom, this is true greatness. So let's unpack this a little bit. We're going to look at kind of like two big points from these three verses. One is confronting pride, and two is being conformed to Christ. So look again at verse 46. An argument arose among them. Now, who's the the them here? We're we're a couple weeks out of this uh, passage in Luke. Um, We stopped for a week to talk about prayer, and then last week was Easter. So now we're coming back. If you remember, in the section before... Jesus and his disciples come down from the mountain. Well, Jesus and three of his disciples, this might be important, come down from the mountain after this glorious picture where they saw uh, the glorified Jesus for a moment and Elijah and Moses. It was an experience, right? They come down and the the disciples who were there having a tough time uh, freeing a boy from demonic oppression. They can't do it. And so Jesus casts out the demon and they're astonished at God's majesty And then a little ways down, we get to this argument, an argument among the disciples. Now, we aren't told which ones. Maybe it was one of the twelve. Maybe also it could have been from the larger group of disciples. There were more than twelve people that followed Jesus around. We'll see that in the coming uh, verses where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to go teach and heal and pray for the sick. Uh, It could have been from the three, Peter, James, and John, who were closest to him. Maybe there was a little jealousy growing amongst the larger group to say, well, he spends a lot of time with those three. Maybe they're more special. But, But we don't know if there's some grumbling here. We're not told. Maybe there's some envy. Maybe it's one of the three. Maybe it's Peter, James, and John. One of them is asserting like, Hey, we're, we're pretty cool. I mean, compared to these guys who couldn't even cast out a demon. I mean, we were up with Jesus in the mountain. We just don't know. Luke doesn't tell us, and neither do Matthew and Mark, who also record this interaction. But they all tell us that some of the disciples were arguing amongst themselves. And the central argument among them was this. Which one of them was greatest? And Matthew highlights 
which one of them was greatest in the kingdom of God. They were comparing spiritual value lists. Who's, who's more spiritual? In essence, saying, like, who's more important in the kingdom? We're going to stop right there for just a second. Think about this. These are grown men. Grown men who've been with Jesus for maybe a year or so, give or take, arguing amongst themselves, which one of us is best? Does that seem to bizarre to anyone else or just me? Like, these arguments happen amongst my children in the backyard. So let's just call this what it is. It's, it's pride. And lest we think like, oh, dumb are they, and we scoff at them, Don't, don't I tend to think the same way at times? I'm better than you. I'm above you. There's this hierarchy of awesome, and I'm just up here a little bit, and you might be down here a tad. And Jesus, patient Jesus. Look at verse 47. He says, or Luke tells us, uh, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he, he knows He knows. In Mark's account, Mark records Jesus asking his disciples, what were you discussing on the way over here? As if he didn't know. And and, and in Mark's gospel, they don't say anything. They stay silent because they were ashamed because they realized on the way they were arguing about who was the greatest. This is consistent with Luke's account. They don't need to say anything. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Not because he has superhuman hearing. I think he had normal human ears. But because Jesus sees through to the motivations of their hearts. Knowing the reasoning of their hearts. This is the inner workings of a person. What motivates them? What drives them? That's this phrase kind of means. It's not just irrational emotion. It's uh, reasoned, intentional, internal activity. Jesus knows the inner selves of the disciples and what's coming out of their hearts onto their lips. And that's the source of this argument. Which one of us is greater? And the disciples here are playing a dangerous game of comparison and one-upsmanship. And and knowing their condition, Jesus stops and confronts it head on. Look at verse 47. Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Jesus takes a child and puts him by his side and says to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Jesus goes for an immediate object lesson. He apparently grabs a kid nearby and pulls him in close to himself and says, whoever receives this child in my name, receives me. Now, what is he trying to convey here? In, the, in a first century Near East context, a child, while important as a human being, would be nearly non-existent in terms of actual societal influence and importance. You wouldn't invite a child to speak on important matters as a contributor to society. They were on, on the low end until they grew up into an adult They would have to wait until they were older. So in terms of level of importance, a child would be on the bottom of the list. So Jesus is taking something, or in this case, someone, who would be considered lowly and unimportant as a counter to the self-importance that the the disciples are kind of playing with right now. Arguing about which one is better than the others. He's demonstrating, Jesus is, the words of Proverbs 3.34. 
where the writer of, of Proverbs here says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. James and Peter echo this proverb in their own letters. First Peter chapter 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6 says the same thing. Jesus is confronting their pride by putting it right in front of them by saying, you would reject this child, right? You wouldn't listen to anything he has to say because you're too important. But, but if you receive this child, you receive me. He's confronting the pride in their hearts and the source of their argument. English pastor and theologian J.C. Ryle says this about pride, which punched me in the gut this week when I read it. Of all sins, there is none against which we have such need to watch and pray as pride. It is a pestilence which walks in darkness and a sickness which destroys at noonday. No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature as pride, he says. It cleaves to us like our skin. Its roots never entirely die. They are ready at any moment to spring up and exhibit a most pernicious vitality. I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of harsh, JC. I don't really, I don't know if I like that. But the more I sat and thought about it and examined myself, honestly, I'm like, yeah, those, those roots are there, aren't they? And it's easy to see it in others and harder to see it in ourselves. Uh, pride is a sneaky one. He goes on, Ra goes on. At the same time, he says, no sin is so senseless and deceitful. It can wear the garb of humility itself. It can lurk in the hearts of the ignorant and the gifted, uh, the ignorant, the gifted, and the poor, as well as in the minds of the great, the learned, and the rich. Sorry, there's a typo there, I think. Yep. See, we are experts at observing other people. And after a few minutes of watching a group happen, we can pick out who the jerk is. Right? Who's the guy we don't want to spend time with? And we can, after spending a little time observing people, we could say, like, I'd, I'd have lunch with that person. Right? Who's the arrogant one? Who's the entitled one? Who's the one that thinks too much of themselves? Who's the quiet, humble one that has good ideas but probably won't say anything? We can observe other people and start to pick out those things. We have a much harder time identifying it in ourselves. Now, we might try to pass that off as being discerning or pragmatic. But it leaks out of us sometimes, this pride. It leaks out of us when we determine that a certain person or a certain situation isn't the best use of my time or my gifts. I just don't feel called to that, you know? See, pride also hides under false humility. When you look at someone who might choose different than you or vote different than you, and say, look how righteous I am compared to them. And if you think I'm talking to the person who votes the other way, this is a both-hand statement. Okay? The, the poor and the uneducated are no less liable to pride than the rich and the learned. Pride at its core is the exaltation of self over and above. Do you want to know what the core issue is? It's so much conflict and brokenness. It's this. It's pride. Do you and your spouse have a conflict that just keeps coming to the surface over and over again? Are you at odds with a brother or sister in Christ and there's unresolved bitterness starting to grow in your heart? Do you find it hard to pray for certain people? 
even here in our own church, because you don't understand how they could hold to that position or that political or social issue. And rather than compassion or even concern, you can have concern for someone and still uh, be humble because you care for their spiritual well-being. But rather than compassion or concern, your heart is forming calluses. I am convinced that the heart of nearly all our conflict as individuals, in relationships, and even societally, while there are always many factors that are in play, and there may not be simple solutions to some of these things, the heart of the problem is this. It's pride. It's an unwillingness and inability to humble oneself. James 4 says as much in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, James says? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, James says... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Your desires and your passions are out of whack. Your sense of entitlement is misaligned. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. You're attempting to live according to the way the world works. And that doesn't jive with the kingdom of God. And Jesus, patient Jesus... Just as the child that he brought near him serves as a mirror for the disciples to see their own pride, he is patient with us and he holds up a mirror to ask us, where do we view ourselves more highly than we ought? Where is my pride? Church, I have to say, I believe the Spirit of God has been preaching this sermon to my heart this week, something fierce. The deceitfulness of pride is real. Right? We cover it in humility so often. I'm being convicted of a tendency in my own heart towards self-justification. Meaning, I was mostly right in that, right? That I'm allowed to feel justified in my anger or my frustration because I wasn't the one who screwed it up. Or that I'm allowed to sit in judgment because I'm on the right in this and that person is in the wrong. At least, you know, at least 60-40. I shouldn't have to be the one to make the phone call. I shouldn't have to be the one to write the email. I've done my part. It's on them now. The Spirit of God is bringing conviction to my heart in this from these three simple verses. Some areas I need to address. Now, please hear me. I know every situation is different. And there is gobs, there are gobs of wisdom in, in healthy boundaries. There are biblical instructions on how to handle conflict and how to forgive. And that extending mercy to someone doesn't mean approving of wrong or sin or abuse or sinful behavior. But hear me in that. But we do need to wrestle honestly with the reality of our own pride. Because the danger isn't just in the here and now. It's not just in the broken potential relationships between us and another. Now, our pride does need to be uh, confronted here and now so that we might walk in humility, that we might walk in grace, that we might have fellowship with one another, that bitterness might not take root in us and grow in our hearts, that those outside the church would look in on how we deal with conflict, how we treat each other, that there would be a difference in here than how the world tends to respond. 
That the look and feel of the kingdom of God in operation, even imperfectly, would be an attractive and desirable alternative to any temporary hope the world can offer. But more than just temporary earthly implications. Jesus is poking into something here that will be fleshed out more as he teaches. That missing this truth has eternal consequences. See, the inverse of what Jesus has told them, if you receive this child, you receive me, and if you receive me, you receive the one who who sent me. The inverse of that is this. If you don't receive this child, you don't receive me, and if you don't receive me, you're not receiving the one who sent me. For the sake of our current life together and for our eternal reality, our pride needs to be confronted. That's what Jesus is kind of starting to lay the groundwork for for these disciples. And what's fascinating about this particular passage is this is the first of at least two times in the Gospels where Jesus has to look at the disciples square in the face and say, do you guys know what you're talking about? In just a few short chapters, we won't get there even in this, in this section in Luke. It'll probably be next year, maybe two, I don't know. Um, they fight about the same thing. Which of us is greatest? For the sake of our life together and for the sake of our eternal reality, our pride needs to be confronted. But we're not just left there like, great, feeling really bad about that. The second idea here is being conformed to Christ. And that's what gives me a lot of hope coming out of this. See, Jesus ties the humbling of self and receiving the child to receiving him. And if receiving him, then receiving the one who sent him, namely God the Father. You want to know how to get into the kingdom? You want to know how to to receive, to to be with the Father? Jesus says, "It's, it's through me. And the way to Jesus comes not by strength or power. It's not being smart enough or fast enough or strong enough or spiritual enough comes through surrender and humility. And there's the kingdom principle in verse 48. For he who is least among you, all, is the one who is great. See, if the first part of this this message this morning was heavy and challenging, confronting our pride, the second part, I pray, is hopeful and comforting. Jesus shows his disciples patiently, what, it, what it's like to start cultivating in themselves this kind of humility. This is one of the great themes of Jesus' ministry on earth. The initiation of his disciples into the kingdom of God. And he does this by confronting their faulty understanding and showing them that's not the way. This is the way. He welcomes the outcast. He touches the sick and the unclean. He shows compassion to the lowly and the poor. He invites children And spends time with them. He bends low to serve such as these. All these things that Jesus does are counter to the worldview that says money, power, success, accomplishment. These things make me worthy. The accumulation of these things, power and status, these things make me worthy. But they don't. In fact, they puff up and fuel a disordered view of self. And Jesus just turns all that on its head. Paul tells us in Philippians exactly what this is like. He describes Jesus 
this way. He's encouraging the church in Philippians to look at Jesus as their example. And he says this, Do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours, let me add, already in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." See, Jesus just doesn't, doesn't say, just be humble. He says, let me show you the way of humility. This is the way of the kingdom of God. See, at the macro level, the big picture level, Jesus showed us what ultimate humility looks like by humbling himself, taking on a human nature, coming to wash the feet of lowly, simple fishermen and healing the sick. Ultimately to bear the humiliation and the shame of a naked public execution so that you and I, the wretched, spiritually impoverished, arrogant traitors could be forgiven. That's the macro picture of Jesus' display of humility. And over and over again in his earthly ministry at the micro level, at the day-to-day and the one-to-one, he exemplifies humility and compassion by serving others over and over again. This is the way of Jesus. So Paul's encouragement then in, in Philippians is look at him. Follow him. Jesus says just as much a few verses earlier. We read it a number of weeks ago. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You want to walk in the ways of the kingdom? You want to live in line with the kingdom of God? You want to know what life looked like for those five minutes in the garden, it seems, at the beginning? Or get a glimpse of what five million years in glory might look like? Like a great wedding feast when we are welcomed in. Rather than seating ourselves up near the head of the table, we come in, we sit in the back of the room without any sense of entitlement. We're just glad to be welcomed in at all. And Jesus comes to us and says, no, come and sit up here with me. This is the posture of humility. Acknowledging that we are in desperate need of God's grace. We sang it. Come, illumine our hearts. Meaning what? Our hearts are darkened too often and we need you to light them up. Awaken us from our sleepiness. Change us. And us, we, being the recipients of God's grace, as his work is applied to us, we walk in it. The great African bishop and church father, Augustine, said it this way. The way to Christ is first through humility. Second, through humility. And third, through humility. If humility does not proceed and accompany and follow every good work we do, if it is not before us to focus on, if it is not beside us to lean upon, if it is not behind us to fence us in, pride will wrench from our hand any good deed we do at the very moment we do it. He's confessing a desperate need of ours to be fully hidden and buried in Christ. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that those who belong to the Father have been chosen to be conformed to the image of His Son. Are we seeing this connection now? It's not just Christ, our example, that we have to try harder to follow. It's looking at all He has done. And as recipients of His grace, being filled by His Spirit, now start to walk in that, however imperfectly, being shaped and formed and fashioned by the One who is indeed the greatest in the kingdom. So we're no longer being then conformed to the world and its logic and its ways of thinking based on outward appearance, based on human standards. But now by the Holy Spirit, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of the old is working itself out of us by the Spirit and, and, and the pride-infested flesh that is like, can't let go. But what's happening is the Spirit is growing in us a new creation. And so this is our gospel reality, true for all of us who are in Christ Jesus, that by God's grace and according to His mercy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being changed. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, after talking about the, the faith of all these witnesses who've gone before, trusting in God, therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these who have run the race before us, he goes, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He established it and is working it out in us by the Holy Spirit, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated. He has done his work, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is merciful as he confronts our pride. He doesn't just strike. I would be dead. He would have struck me down with lightning earlier this week, and that didn't happen. I'm grateful. He is merciful as he confronts us in our pride, cautioning that if we remain there, if we remain there, we will not only struggle in the here and now, but we are in danger of missing the kingdom and missing him entirely. This isn't condemnation. This is merciful conviction. And beyond that, Jesus is showing us a better way, a way the way of the kingdom. He shows us by his own example what true greatness really is. Greater love has no one than this than he laid on his life for his friends. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus invites, come, all who are thirsty. That's right. These short three verses from Luke chapter 9 open up for us a deep well of water, I think, for our souls. Jesus' simple and gracious picture. To look at him as our example and not merely a good example to follow, but as the one who is the embodiment of what it is to live in this way, humble and servant-hearted, with eyes set on the coming kingdom and the glory of God. See, our measurement of greatness, our measurements of worth, are often skewed because the latent pride that remains in us blinds us to those things. We don't even see our own bias. But Jesus, loving us too much to let us linger there, confronts our pride and shows us that we find true greatness in humility, receiving him and being conformed to his likeness. This is life in the kingdom. For my own heart and for yours, 
my prayer is for greater humility. That this would be part of our daily prayers. Lord, kill the latent pride that lives in my heart. Lord, make me humble. That's dangerous because sometimes it takes things to humble me. But it's good. That we would, by God's grace and the Spirit's power working in us, lay aside our self-righteousness and pride. That we would be humble before He humbles us, if that makes sense. That we would esteem others as better than ourselves. That we would be ready to put ourselves in the place of the least, following the lead of our King who put Himself least. Therefore, as Paul says in Philippians, because of all who He is and all He has done, therefore, God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we far too often have an overdeveloped sense of self. We bear the marks in our hearts and in our lives of the the sin of pride bearing fruit or bearing thorns and wounding us and others. I thank you that even in this moment this morning, you're merciful and patient and gracious to bring conviction to places that it's needed. God, I pray you'd make me, you'd make us humble. And if it takes humbling me, so be it. Because we don't want to miss you. We don't want to find ourselves on the outside of the kingdom looking in. Release our grip on our desire and false ability to earn our way to you, to to prove to you our our faithfulness, our, our righteousness, that we are justified before you, and to throw ourselves, lay ourselves heavy on you, Lord Jesus, who alone is our righteousness, who alone is our justification, who loves us undeservedly, that we might respond with gratitude and humility Speak to us, encourage us, renew us, we pray.